Welcome to Open Mind UFO Radio. I am your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I am here with Bat Martin Bad Connection Willis. <laughs> well, let's hope that's not true. Yeah, let's actually, see. it sounds good. We were having problems good. a minute ago, but uh, it, it's yeah. sounding good. Yeah, internet's been in- intermittent here, but mm-hmm. let's. Uh, Weird. We better. We better start. You know, just keep talking. Just get sure into it, huh? Okay. Yeah. Well, first, I'll talk about my guest, um, and that is I'm really – this is what I'm super excited about because it's been years in the making. Again, cannot believe that I haven't had him on before, but my guest is Greg Bishop. Ah. And I'm a really big fan of his. Um, he uh, – I often reference his book, um, Project Beta. And the reason why is, of course, that people who listen to my show know that I'm into this whole Richard Doty, William Moore thing. And I actually uh-huh. am going to give a short overview for people just so they can be on the same page. We talk about it in the show, but I want to make sure that everybody has a strong idea of what we're talking about because so, it's more fun when you feel like you know what people are talking about. But essentially the situation where this gentleman, William Moore – who is a big deal because of the Roswell event, which is coming up here soon, and Greg and I will talk about that. But uh, he was a UFO researcher. It turned out he was working with a guy who was working for the Air Force, uh, Richard Doty. Richard Doty claimed that you know he was doing this disinformation program, um, and his outlet for information was this man named Paul Benowitz, who wasn't in the know, and Benowitz uh, worked near Kirkland Air Force Base. And uh, Benowitz was a scientist, and so he believed he was getting these signals and pictures of aliens, and Doty said we wanted him to believe that so that uh, the Russians wouldn't find out what he was really getting, which was signals and pictures of our secret projects here at Kirtland. Uh, So we fed him a bunch of stuff about aliens. The guy got paranoid, essentially went crazy. Uh, Turned out years later that Bill Moore was working with uh, Doty and helping him with all of this stuff. So very controversial issue. Um, I've written something up and talked about it quite a bit. But uh, I think the only one who's talked about it probably more than I uh, via a podcast is our guest today, which is Greg Bishop. He has his own podcast called Radio Mysterioso, and like he says, he's been podcasting before it was called podcasting. So um, a big fan of Greg Bishop's, and you'll hear why when we talk more about all of this in just a minute. Yes, I I have been trying to get Greg on my own show. Mm-hmm. His hours are his hours just do not line up with my show, unfortunately. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's too bad because he's great. And this whole thing about Doty. And uh, the misinformation. Now, I know he had Chris Lambright, who's a friend of mine. He was on your show mm-hmm. talking a bit about uh, uh, the Paul Benowitz case. Mm-hmm. What a convoluted mess that whole thing is. Really where mm-hmm. Dulcie was uh, first, you know, actually disinformation generated from. And MJ-12. Thing. 
and MJ12. That's right, the beginnings of that. Yeah, so we the don't talk so much. Bill Moore, oh, pardon me. Bill Moore walks out. You know, I mean, basically comes clean. This is in the interview. Uh oh. This is what we okay. talk about with Greg Bishop. Right. So you can edit this out. No, I'm not going to now. All right. Another awkward moment. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I'm not going to edit it out. But you know, you're talking what you're discussing. You're obviously excited about too because it is terribly interesting. And so <laughs> I didn't want to spend the whole time talking about this. In fact, I want to have Greg Bishop on later to talk more about this. But actually, to be honest, most of the show turned out to be talking about this because I wanted to talk about other things that Greg Bishop is up to because he just wrote a book. Um, called it Defies Language, which is really cool, too, with a lot of different stories uh, about ufology. But a lot of it comes back to this for him. So, and, and one of the reasons he's so important is he's one of the few people still talking to Bill Moore. So, uh, yeah, we'll get into hmm. all of that. Wow. Fascinating, huh? It is. I didn't know that. I didn't know anyone was talking to, to Bill. Oh, yeah. Wait, yeah, he's the only one. So, uh, yep, um, you will enjoy the show as well. I will. Yes. But before that, let's get into the news. UFO news. Did it, did it, did it, did it. So go ahead. And right. uh, what's the first story you want to talk about there, buddy? Well, I think this is a great one. Uh, this is uh, this happened all the way back on October second, two 2012. And it's another hmm. uh, posting by Roger Marsh. He's digging through to find all these really interesting MUFON cases. This is case mm -hmm. number 43950. And, uh, 43950. Can we write this to make sure I got that down? <laughs> oh, the uh, witness says uh, the triangle UFO emitted sound of horns and trumpets. Oh, yeah. Yeah, really bizarre. Um, this is in Davis, California, where I know there's a university there. I used to drive uh, by there. Um, he was watching and videotaping with his phone a triangle-shaped UFO until his phone conked out. He only got about 31 seconds, I think. Now, his dog uh, seemed very anxious and wanted to go outside. This was at 1.43 a.m. again on October 2nd, 2012, when this incident occurred. And uh, this is a quote by him. I remember hearing a loud sound of what sounded like or what seemed like horns or trumpets from all around, the witness stated. And I remember being uh, very early in the morning, maybe 2 a.m., and thinking, why isn't anyone else waking up to the sound? Uh, so he went out and he saw this triangular formation of lights. And you can see on the, the video that's posted um, on Open Minds that there's like these flashing for, uh, flashing formation of lights. It's not navigation lights not the way they flash because the center light is flashing as well uh really great uh, short little video but this kind of reminds me of something you hear linda molden howe talking about how people are hearing these sounds of trumpets and horns uh they're reporting it all over the world which is kind of strange you know just another one of those strange phenomena but uh it kind of reminded me of that and uh and it's a definitely an interesting case check it out yeah, that is an interesting case. The video's pretty good. Um, some people were saying those are definitely airplane strobe lights, and, and I posted a video in the story of some strobe lights, and it could be. I mean, you can put them wherever you want over your, your plane, and, and it does look strobe uh, similar, but um, 
So the video alone, I guess you can't for sure and say it's not an aircraft with strobe lights, but it is a very vivid video, so people can take a look. Um, uh, this object seemed to be pretty close, and the California investigator, he even made some comments in the story, and, and I talk about his comments. Uh, he, he very much feels like this was uh, an unknown and something strange. So uh, the trumpets thing, again, you can't hear these trumpets in the video. Um, the witness said mm -hmm. he saw these things and heard the trumpets twice. Um, so again, you know, it's hard because I haven't seen a convincing video of the trumpets thing. Uh, they all seem kind of dubious, and some of them have been proven to be hoaxes. So... So I don't know, um, but is it based on something real? Maybe I don't know, but uh, that at least the the Mufon guy really thought this witness was was credible and that this was the real deal. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting video. What kind of blowhards would be hoaxing trumpet noises? <laughs> what kind Sorry. of blowhards are these aliens anyway? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah bunch of blowhards Sorry. all over. No, that's cute. Mm. I like that. Yeah. All right. So we'll leave a, that in. a couple things. I guess I'll get to this one first. I, I wanted to write a story about it, and I've done some research on it. But you know what? I'm not going to have time. i got to get ready for Roswell tomorrow. Uh, hopefully, I'll, I might have time to write something on it tomorrow, maybe. But just in case I don't, I'm going to talk about it anyway. Um, I don't even have something up on the website about this. But some of you may have heard about it. And if not, then you'll hear about it here, which is good. But essentially... Um, there's a story going on out there about this guy, Victor Vigiano. Have you heard this one? No. Victor Vigiani. So they had this um, Canadian kind of panel this weekend, and uh, Richard Dolan was there, um, Grant Cameron, some other uh, Canadian researchers, and uh, the previous defense minister for Canada, Paul Hellyer, was there. Uh, he's been at the IUFOC. Of course, Hellyer subscribes to a lot of really fringe ideas in ufology. Uh, unfortunately, he has no official story. He didn't investigate UFOs. Um, he says a general told him that the Roswell thing was real. Uh, he hasn't identified who that is, but uh, that's about the only thing he has that isn't outside of just kind of reading kind of the more fringe stuff on the Internet. Uh, but... During this, Victor Vigiani, who has a, a newspaper kind of thing that he does in uh, – uh, and he, he really writes some really fringe, wild kind of stories. And, and sometimes he just feels that aliens are here to attack and stuff. So like this, this story that we just reviewed, if he were to re write it, he would have said something like, aliens attack Davis, California or something like that. He uh, – um, um, and, and I hear he's a really nice guy. I think he, that's just genuinely what he feels is going on. Mm. Um, so he he made a comment in this meeting that I've got these files from NORAD. They're amazing. They prove that they're looking at aliens. And I, I am going to talk about these and share them with the world even though I can go to jail uh, and get uh, indicted, and he read part of a, a file that says any distribution of this kind of information threatens national security and violates the Espionage Act of the United States. So it sounds real exciting, right? And mm. then uh, he finally gave these files to Roger Marsh again of MUFON, who posted them. Um, 
But, like always, major disappointment. It's none of that stuff. So these files, which are great, they're Canadian files. So they're interesting. They're older files. I'm actually going to be speaking about some of these files at uh, the MUFON Symposium in August in Orlando. I'm going to be talking about government UFO agencies. And Canada, for a small period of time, uh, had an official UFO investigation. And uh, some of these files stem from that. But they're just kind of like the, the Blue Book files. Nothing too exciting, but some interesting cases that they investigated. So nothing too interesting there. Um, he also cited uh, a letter, and this is the only piece of new information. He wrote a letter saying he wants the UFO information from NORAD, uh, which is the North American like uh, radar command um, sort of thing where they look watch space and radar and everything. And they sent him back and said, uh, you know, we'll, we'll send you some material. And essentially they also talked about what are called TOAs, Tracks of Interest. Um, we get about 1,800 tracks of interest of which, uh, you know, we've had. And we uh, scramble like about 75 jets to check out these things. Um, so he's like saying, you know, this proves that they're watching aliens and they're chasing aliens. Well, not really. If you look up the def definition of the tracks of interest, which is something, you know, you can go to John Greenwald's site and find this. You can – Chris Rutkowski talked about all of this actually at our UFO Congress, and he's got all of these files as well, and he showed some of them at the Congress. Um, they are – like an unknown airplane. So it's actually a drug trafficking um, terminology. So if they see a plane mm -hmm. that they think is often, you know, you don't know what it is, it's a track of interest. In fact, I looked up one of these in uh, John Greenwald's site, and it was a plane where its transponder wasn't working. So they didn't know what it was. They found out it was a plane's transponder not working, so that plane got that transponder fixed. So not as exciting um, as everything he's saying. But what's kind of cool is in the letter it says, we can't give you details on these TOIs because it's still classified. However, we can tell you that we get 1,800 TOIs and 75 uh, scrambles. So that's interesting, but it's hardly anything he's going to get in trouble for. It's not anything that hasn't been out there before. Uh, so just the delivery was completely... Oh, way over-exaggerated. So um, <laughs> you're going to see these extreme over-exaggerations online. But uh, if you want more of these details, I, I kind of outlined all of this at the uh, on the Open Minds UFO news group. So you can see our conversation about it there. Um, and I saw Alabama MUFON posted uh, with Richard Hoffman is their director. And we talked about it there as well. But... Uh, just, just to be careful, you're people will run across it because it's going to be all over the internet, and unfortunately, uh, the information isn't being vetted um, before it's being posted out there. But Roger did a pretty good job, actually, accurately summarizing. I got confused because what Roger had stated was not necessarily what you know uh, I felt Victor was saying, and so I was really confused. But Roger was actually very accurate in his statement. So, huh. so there you go. Yeah, you'll run across stuff. it. The other story yeah. I wanted to talk about real quick here. Did you see this one? A $10,000 reward yeah. offer to decipher yeah. the Roswell UFO memo. Have you ever had anyone on to talk about that memo? Um, no. I thought about having Rudiak um, on. I 
I think I tried to reach out to him before. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because um, as far as I know, you know, he was the only person that got as far with it as um, I mean, he got further with it than anyone else mm-hmm. did. Um, I, and I've I looked at your um, article about that, and um, I I see the you know them um, getting words out of I don't know how, you know I can't really see those words. Um, Any of them side by side. So a couple of them like the or something like that you can kind of yeah. figure out, but some of those words are really difficult, and I don't know. If there's any technology that can possibly crack that. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so here's the deal, and that's the issue. Essentially, you know, this memo, uh, there's Roger Ramey, uh, General Roger Ramey, and uh, Colonel Thomas Dubois are in this famous picture from Roswell. And uh, they are sitting there with debris that looks like a weather balloon. And Roger Ramey is kneeling down. And uh, he's got a memo in his hand. Now, these are pictures that were released on July 8th when the Army said, because it was the Army Air Force, the Air Force was still part of the Army at this time, the Army said, oh, no, that wasn't a spaceship that crashed in, in Roswell. That was actually a weather balloon. And this is the day after they said the opposite. They said, no, that was a spaceship. So... um uh, you know, Jesse Marcel Jr., uh, or I'm sorry, Sr., who is the first intelligence officer to look at the debris, is also in some of these pictures with the debris. Uh, he later said that, you know, the debris, the weather balloon debris, was not what I found in the desert. But they told me to say it was, so like a good soldier, I did what I was told. And uh, Colonel Dubois, who's actually also in the picture, he, he went on to become a general also, I believe. Um, he later has said that that weather balloon was not what was found in the desert. That was put there by Roger Ramey uh, so that it, it wasn't what they found. And later, the Air Force in 1994 put out a, a report about Roswell, and they admitted that that weather balloon material was not what was found in Roswell. But they said, we believe that Roger Ramey switched out the debris because what was actually um, found in Roswell was debris from a Project Mogul balloon. And this is a balloon with some sound equipment that was monitoring to listen to Russian nuclear testing. Now, that was a secret project at the time. However, that would also be debris that would be easily identifiable, you would think. Mm-hmm. No one would mm-hmm. mistake that for something strange. So uh, that's kind of the story. And uh, however, in this photograph I was talking about with with Ramey and Du Bois, David Rudiak took a look at this and zoomed in, and he felt that you know, with the modern technology being able to scan uh, the the slide and stuff like that, he would be he could tell some letters that were in the memo, and he feels at least pretty confident about these two phrases. One of the phrases in the memo, he says, says, and the victims of the wreck. And the other says, in the disc, they will ship. He also says you can see weather balloon. So that's important because weather balloon shows that the memo is referencing this Roswell thing. He says, um, the disc, they will ship, refers to a disc. So he feels that proves a disc was found. And like I said, possibly more startling is he feels the victim of the wrecks corroborates uh, some witness testimony that they were ET bodies found at the wreck. So that's about, you know, he's been able to decipher what he feels the memo says. However, 
Uh, Kevin Randall in this recent blog post said he was discussing with a friend of his that that's not enough. You know, David Rudiak has, has done some great work, but he's not, you know, you need to take this to a lab or someone credible so that, um, you know, the the mainstream community can accept that what is said in this memo. But that would cost a lot of money. And it's too it bad would. someone yeah. doesn't have that money. And so yeah. this person said, "Well, you know what? Let's put up. I'll put up a ten thousand dollar reward, so then that person could get reimbursed if they do go get this analyzed." And um, so that that's what created this ten thousand dollar reward. So now, if you go to a lab, you take this photo, take it to a lab, have the pay the lab uh, to get this deciphered, or some other photographic expert or expert in this arena. And pay for that to get um, deciphered, then um, you know you could win ten thousand dollars. Some people have argued, well, no one's going to completely agree on the, the what what the information says. And uh, Randall says, well, we all agreed on the Roger Wasrell slides. What the placard had said once that was deciphered, um, everybody, especially who listens to our shows knows what that debacle was all about. But uh, when the uh, picture with the um, placard was shared with the public, it was quickly determined what it said, and it was quickly accepted, um, except for, as Randall says, by the people who had a vested interest in that that picture being an alien, which no one felt it, which most felt it was not. So, and you and I, for instance, agree what the placard says. So, uh Kevin Randall being who he is, a trustworthy person, um, and if he's the guy to make that determination, then, um, you know, I think uh, I, I have faith in Kevin. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's kind of an interesting situation. I wonder what, if anyone will take him up. And I don't know what kind of lab you would go to. Well, you know, the FBI or CIA definitely has a lab that would crack something like that. Mm -hmm. But I don't know how you would get access to I mean, I, I don't know how many other places would because it would have to be someone doing serious investigations for like national security that would have you know, the top of the line tech uh, tech for that type of work, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, there are places that do testing. I think uh, you you and I talked about that before that will do certain type of tests and they are very expensive. Ten thousand dollars may not even uh, near cover it. It's very possible. Wow. Um, you know, I always think about how. Uh, what a blunder that was for him to have the memo in his hand that actually would spell that out. I mean, they never probably would have thought that technology would come along that could crack something like that. Yeah, and I don't know. Maybe technology in the future will even, you know, get better to where uh, maybe we don't have at least easily available or readily available the technology to do this right now, but maybe in the future we will. Um, you would think someone would be able to decipher it. And, you know, interesting enough, in that report that I talked about where they admitted that uh, the weather balloon wasn't real, they said that they had the, video, the photo analyzed and their lab could not decipher what was in the, in the memo. So it's interesting huh. that the Air Force said they did that. And it is a bit uh, hard to believe that they couldn't decipher anything, but... I don't know. You can take yeah. a look. I'm not good at deciphering this type of stuff, so I'm kind of like you. I kind of feel like I can see victims of the wreck in Fort Worth, Texas, but uh, only kind of. I don't. I can't say for sure. Yeah, I'm sure there's some type of 
probability uh, program that will take, uh, you know, that in these labs. Mm-hmm. Because if you can't really spell it accurately, I mean, you can't really see these things accurately, but um, it would probably do a percentage and a probability of a word. That's yeah. probably what it will boil down to. Hopefully eventually. it's not a memo about his lunch, you know. <laughs> I, want, I would like, you know, and then he talks about the weather balloon because I'm stuck at this stupid weather balloon press conference. <laughs> but after that, I would like um, a, uh, you know, coffee on a saucer. Yeah, and, uh, victims of the lunch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what it says. Yeah. So good. Yeah. We'll find out. Interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I guess we will conclude. Of course, there's more news at OpenMinds.tv, uh, where we post UFO news daily. But um, did you have anything else? Any big announcement? Yes, I do. Oh wow! This week, wow. Okay. Um, I had a special guest on my show last week, and it's still um, up on my website. And I would love uh, for um, the listeners who kind of like this guy I'm talking with today. Alejandro was on my show last week, and uh, I thought we had a, a really good time. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback, a lot of email from that. And uh, so go over to podcastufo.com, and you'll see the show right there with Alejandro and I. It was a lot of fun. Cool. Did you get some negative feedback? Not one single one, which is very what? unusual. That is unusual. That's yeah, freaking, I don't know. That What's, freaks me out a little bit. I know it is kind of scary. Yeah. Something's going to happen. Well, that's cool. Yeah. That's really good to hear. Yeah, I know. So um, I'm going to be headed to Roswell in a couple days for um, the Roswell event out there and i'm going to be speaking for actually i usually speak for the ufo museum but i'm actually going to be down the street speaking for the roswell daily record the newspaper that had that you know iconic front page about the flying saucer that you see um back in 1947 so i'm going to be speaking for the roswell daily record this is the first time they're putting something together uh and it's kind of fun i'll be there with colonel charles Haltz, um colonel john alexander uh lee spiegel um nick pope so some really cool people that i'll be speaking with and then keith aram who did the phoenix incident movie uh will be with us there so it's going to be a lot of fun well yes i i hope you say hi to those folks for me and um i had a email exchange with uh chuck halt the other day and he has a new book coming out in about 90 days or so oh yeah it's kind of his side of the story in this battle between um yeah, the convoluted battle of Rendlesham Forest. Yeah, exactly. And um, mm-hmm. so, and you know what? Colonel Charles Halt is a colonel, and everything he witnessed was witnessed by multiple witnesses. So he's in a very strong position. Um, and I think it's silly to um, second guess the importance uh, of his testimony and how his testimony and the others with multiple witnesses is much stronger. A more credible testimony than, um, despite what you think of it, and, and I don't want to taint anybody's thoughts or anything, but uh, at least not today, um, of Peter Whitney, Peter Robbins's friend uh, Larry Warren, who was the first to come out with the information, but his his uh, what he had seen is pretty much uncorroborated. So um, it's it's a story worth telling, but um, yeah, uh, you well know, that's where. You and I met in North Carolina, uh, I think yeah. three years ago. Yeah. And uh, we both saw uh, ch- uh, Chuck go up there. Uh, he likes to be called Chuck in person, 
but Charles Holt, uh, you know, talked about the incident. And I'm telling you, I had goosebumps. I mean, that, yeah. uh, he, he, if anyone is believable, that man is believable. Well, what's kind of cool, too, and I love doing this, is that they a lot of these guys don't have similar perspectives, not the exact same perspectives. Colonel Alexander, Charles Halt, Nick Pope, uh, they don't all agree, although they all worked in the government. Um, they all had UFO-related sort of things that they, they were involved with. Uh, Colonel Halt, not necessarily, although being an insider, he looked into UFOs independently, uh, but with some, some other colleagues that were in intelligence. So they all have some special insight, but they don't all agree. And so I'm definitely going to have fun um, pointing out those differences and uh, not to get them to argue with each other because that's what's great about these guys. <laughs> They're all highly professional. Um, mm -hmm. But to try to kind of get to the truth of the matter in that, um, you know, what are the different perspectives that they, they each have? What do they agree on? What do they not agree on? Because, mm -hmm. you know, the truth is somewhere in there. So uh, it's going right. to be a lot of fun. I highly respect all of these people. And uh, uh, I'm just really happy to be a part of it. And it's going to be really cool. Great. Well, have a great time. What are you going to do? Oh, July 4th. Yeah. I'm actually working. <laughs> oh, you are. Um, I'm away from home. Yeah, I'm away from home um, and uh, in the uh, fine arts and antiques world uh, doing a big auction coming up on the 8th. So I am planted down in Massachusetts at a beautiful uh, home. Uh, I think I showed you a cool. picture of Paul Revere Silver. Oh, yeah. yeah. How so, cool. Yep. Yeah, that's so really anyway, cool. it's at that home. Okay, mm -hmm. awesome. Well, have fun. And July 2nd, I think, is World UFO Day. <laughs> Okay, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so keep an eye on your social media because last year we did a discount for the UFO Congress. If you we put out a code for July or for World UFO Day, so I'm trying to arrange the same thing this year. So keep an eye on the social media, and I'll send information out about that um, there. So keep an eye at Open Minds Production on Facebook and our Open Minds TV on Twitter. And keep your eyes to the sky. Keep your eyes to the sky. <laughs> you like that? I like that. All That's right. Thank you so much, Martin, for joining us once again. And you have a lovely July 4th weekend. We won't have a show next week because of the holiday. Uh, so I apologize. But we'll be back in a couple weeks. Have a great one. You too. Uh, let's go ahead and talk to Greg. I am very happy to welcome Greg Bishop to the show. Hello, how are ya? Hey, how you doing? Good. I'm doing great and uh, super excited to have you on. And you know what? You're another person who I could swear, I do this often, I could swear that we had done another show, but uh, when I looked at, in our my archives and stuff, I guess we haven't. Well, you get to the point where you talk to so many people. I mean, you, you don't even remember. People say they've been on my show and I go, what, really? And I have to go back and look for the... <laughs> You know, because I've been doing it, I've been interviewing people on in various formats since 97, I think. Wow, yeah. And uh, first it was on a pirate radio station, and then um, internet radio, and it's been that since 2000, October of 2000, I started my internet podcast type show, and then podcasting actually started being podcasting in 2006 or 7, so it's been that since then. Yeah, wow. See, I... um. 
I thought I had you on to talk about because we have our shared interest in um, – although it might have been your first, your book is one of the first uh, real books that I read on it. But the whole Richard Doty situation with Bill Moore and everything and uh, – um, and yeah, your book Project Beta is uh, one of the the few, you know, thorough books on that whole situation. So uh, when I was researching it, uh, I relied upon it a lot, you know, and always reference the book when I when I talk about it. But um, I we'll we'll touch on it. We'll uh, sure. I think later. But uh, at some point, it would be fun, and, and I'd be great to where we'll do a show where we'll talk specifically about. Just Doty and more, and uh, go over that thoroughly uh, in the future. Okay. Yeah, I don't usually say anything that makes anybody happy, but then I'm I'm ever so slightly biased because Bill's still a friend of mine. So yeah, so I'll probably beat you up a little bit about that. You should. <laughs> so, but uh, uh, still, you've definitely got some unique insights because of that. And uh, well, I guess to start off, you know uh, the. A big reason that I'm having you on is because I want to help you promote your book. It defies language, and in this book, you have a lot of different essays on the uh, that you've written over the years, which touch on many, many topics. And Bill Moore and Richard Doty uh, is one of many of the topics you touch on here. But yeah, just lightly, I guess we could talk about it now. And uh, Bill Moore, for people who don't know, uh, was one of the guys who brought Roswell to made Roswell famous, right? I mean, he wrote the um, first book, um, which leaned heavily on Stanton Friedman's research as well. Yes, but uh, Stanton wasn't credited for the book. I know Stanton has told me why, but do you remember why that is? No, I can't remember why. Maybe it had something to do with the publishing contract or something. They wanted, yeah. they mainly wanted Charles Berlitz's name on there because he he'd made a big hit with the Bermuda Triangle book and I guess a few other mystery books. Mm -hmm. And so they they basically paired more with him, and then more actually went to Roswell uh, in '78. I think he was the first person to. I believe the first person to go there and, and actually talk to people. I don't know if if Stan had done that. He had talked to Jesse Marcel and done some re background research. I'm not sure if he actually traveled there and interviewed people. Mm -hmm. Bill did. I st <laughs> he gave me a few of his interview tapes from 1978. I still have them. Wow, cool. So I've actually got people talking about these things for the first time since you know since 1947. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just just two of them. Yeah, and, uh, I would like to get them. I'm trying to figure out how to play them back without getting them destroyed, and digitize them, and then just make them available for everybody. I mean, I'm not going to sell them or anything. They're, yeah. they're research materials, so um, it'd be interesting. And I've heard uh, arguments where people are saying, "Yeah, you know, it was uh, what's the teletype operator at the radio station, Lydia Sleppy, I think, the one that was told that was broadcasting or uh, sending a uh, news report out, and then she got a call uh, saying to stop it." Um, and there's a lot of debate over what she was told, when she was told it, what exactly she was told. And I've got a tape of an interview with her from 1978. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe I'd better digitize that. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about Roswell. What, it's the 59th anniversary this year. Um, wow. Not this weekend, but, well, when the show comes out Monday, it will be this weekend. I'll be yeah. heading to Roswell for like the 12th year in the row um, <laughs> to go and uh, talk about uh, 
UFOs and stuff. I don't know if it's the 12th, but it's a lot. And uh, for the Roswell Daily Record. But, um, you know, I guess from that perspective, early on, I guess there's this perception, I think. There's a lot of misperceptions about how Roswell really got to be big and famous. And really, Bill Moore's book was, was a big deal. Uh, but it was more than just an interview with Jesse Marcel, right? They, they interviewed many people. Yeah, they interviewed... Um uh, God, I can't remember who else. I think at least Mac Brazel or one of the Brazels. Um, their their neighbors, the Proctors, um, um, Lydia Sleppy, of course. I can't remember everybody interviewed in that book. And then, of course, you know, the second the the Schmidt and Randall book uh, went out and interviewed more people. Mm-hmm. But Moore's book was the first. Moore and 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 Berlitz book was the first in nineteen. 19- 78 or 9 uh, called the Roswell Incident which is, you know, if that book hadn't come out I sort of doubt there'd be a Roswell Festival right now mm-hmm. Right, because it might have been ignored mm-hmm. you know, at, at, uh, up to now I, maybe not, but it, it's, uh, it certainly put it on the map as, as a um, as an event to be uh, uh, studied, looked at and um, for better or worse, turned into what it has now right uh, Kind of as a touchstone. If nobody, if you've never heard of UFOs um, ever or don't care about them, you know what Roswell is. So that's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think that's the. It's basically it's said in the same breath with any any other f- uh, famous paranormal anything is is, is mm-hmm. Roswell. So um, it's kind of weird that nobody he said more as such a persona non grata that nobody really even mentions his name or the fact that if he hadn't written that book they wouldn't be having that festival there probably yeah which is funny and we'll get into that and that's one of the things i guess that fascinated me about the whole richard doley bill Moore situation is that um i feel and uh we'll see if you feel similar uh is that the whole situation got swept under the rug it's not like anybody forgave bill Moore. For uh, and we'll get into this. Uh, people who have listened to the show quite a bit know uh, that Bill Moore, it turned out, was you know working with Richard Doty, who was an Air Force um, uh, worked for Air Force Special Investigations, and they were hoaxing information, uh, but and, and other things. And we'll get your perspective on that. Uh, but uh, and that's what your book is about, Project Beta. But he hasn't been forgiven. But it's not like people don't. Uh, you know, a lot of the big researchers don't necessarily take it upon themselves to spend a lot of effort. Some do, but most don't to disparage him. But they just just don't talk about him or that situation at all. No, they don't because they've got uh, you know a lot of good information was uncovered for the first time by um, Friedman and Moore uh, to put together that book. Um, but. You know they're they're so angry at him as what they see as turncoat behavior that they don't want to acknowledge it, which is it's a very it's a very strange situation. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And I guess from your perspective, looking at and and knowing that you're a discerning you know researcher, you're not someone who just is is like many who, um, if it's labeled UFOs and somebody writes about it, then it must be true. Uh, you know you're you're more careful with how you look at things. Having access to some of Bill Moore's uh, interviews from that time period that others don't, I mean, what do you what are your perceptions of the Roswell case? 
at this point, since I haven't thought about it in so many years, <laughs> the perception of it is well, because the thing is, it's to me, it's like the Kennedy assassination, mm-hmm. um, at least as it stands right now. There's there's a lot of evidence in a lot of directions, mm-hmm. um, and you can place whatever your belief system is on that evidence and find plenty of evidence to back it up. Um, and I've, I'm kind of undecided about it. I've, I, I kind of doubt that it was something from outer space that crashed with aliens in it. I kind of doubt it. I, I haven't made a hard and fast decision on it. But um, the, the thing is that I think there's, until somebody says something about it, some, somebody who knew what was going on actually says something, and it's corroborated by other people and backed up by... Um, some kind of documentation, which might be really hard to find. That might have been destroyed. Um, it's it's going to be really hard to tell whether it was what people, you know, what a lot of uh, proponents think it was, which was, you know, uh, some sort of extraterrestrials crashing here in in some sort of uh, uh, structured craft. Mm-hmm. Well, in these interviews, sure, and I, I don't think I'll ever be sure, and I yeah. don't really mind. <laughs> yeah, which is funny because uh, that perspective is what upsets people, and I understand that because I was just talking with someone the other day about this um, because he was asking me my perspective on things, and he was shocked to hear I don't believe everything. Uh, but uh, like I said, first of all, my beliefs are secondary, um, yeah. and I'm pretty much agnostic about everything in that I don't know for sure. It's possible right. – but I don't know, and like you, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I'm totally okay with it. I mean, that, that's a – if you want to talk about a um, true skeptical <clears throat> viewpoint, I think a true skeptical view – you still there? Yeah. Yeah, I think a true skeptical viewpoint is I am going to only make a decision on something when I have so much overwhelming evidence that it's impossible for me to remain agnostic. Mm-hmm. And for UFOs, that – I don't think that's happened with almost anything. The only thing I'm not totally agnostic about is the fact that people see things that are unexplainable. I'm pretty sure that happens. I'm pretty sure that's happened a lot. I don't know what the explanation is for it. There's probably hundreds of explanations for different things that happen to people and things they've seen, um, whether they range from extraterrestrials to you know um, underground civilizations to you know creations of your own mind based on what you saw. All these things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, you have to, you know, with this field and almost any of these things, anything that's not really people haven't made a decision on yet as a, uh, collectively, you can't really come down on one side or the other because then you have to start defending a position. And especially with UFOs, there's it, when you, once you start defending a position, there are hordes of people that have come out and point out all the parts of your argument that are wrong, and, and they'll be pretty much correct. Right. <laughs> So you have to keep it, you know, that's what, open minds is called open minds, I think. You just, you you keep your options open until, like I said, there's just so much evidence that you can't really, uh, you, you, you can't really uh, hold a, uh, you know, agnostic position anymore. Where you have to say, I think this is, a, I think this is what happened and I'm pretty sure that uh, I'm going to keep it this way. And then be able to change your opinion if more information comes up. That's the other thing. You have to be open to new information, even if it doesn't agree with your biases, mm-hmm. and see how it holds up. And that's that's a little bit of work. 
So. Yeah. You know, someone mentioned in a forum, actually, there's a there's a argument, and I try not to, to get involved with these, but I did in this case. <laughs> That's um, a mistake. Yeah, it always is. And in this case, someone was saying, you know, because uh, uh, researcher Chris Rutowski, who you know, was yeah. saying something similar, and uh, one of the guys kind of jumped on him and was like, Hey, well, you don't believe this. You don't believe in, you know, psychic phenomena and alien abduction and alien people talking to aliens and all of this and uh, asking him all these questions like that. And Chris is like, well, you you saw my statement. You know, I don't want to get involved. But I drew him in anyway because and actually in Chris's defense that actually Chris is just saying that he uh, those positions he takes uh, are because there is no proof of those things that that you're mentioning so it's totally legitimate for chris to have this perspective and you're the one who has to you know argue your point um really the burden's on you not chris and then this person's all like oh i feel like i'm getting beaten up and not at all uh it's just open discussion but you're the one who has to kind of you know you're you've not got getting to... beaten up. You have to. You have to. You have to defend your position. Mm-hmm. If you don't defend your position and just expect people to believe you, that's what children do. Right. So and, right. You, you have to. And if you can't defend the position, you take the position that Chris or I or you or many other people do, which is, I'm not sure yet, and I'm reserving judgment. I think Chris is more like, there's no proof, therefore, you know, I'm not going to put any stock in it yet. Mine's yeah. a little different. Mine is, um, there's not enough proof yet. But I'm still highly interested. Like I think remote right. viewing is is, uh, is something that really actually works because I've experienced it, which is you know that's a uh, that's a uh, uh, that's personal experience. Um, but something like you know are ghosts dead people that are coming back to haunt us? I'm not so sure. I'm pretty sure there's things called ghosts that people see, but I'm not exactly sure what causes them, where they come from, and how we perceive them, which is a huge part of it. Perception, I think, is something that people don't really pay attention to and how we perceive things. That's mm-hmm. kind of what I'm crusading on right now, as you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So that is um, uh, – and you know what? Your perspective will be very welcome on this podcast. Of course, I'm open and welcoming to people with all different perspectives. I certainly don't mind people. I respect everyone having an opinion, even those people who want to believe in everything. That's your right. Fine. Um, but we all, you know, respect that everybody else can be skeptical. But there was another person in there who said, kind of a, getting back to what you had mentioned, he said that this topic is like a religion. Everybody had or politics. Everybody has a set opinion, and when we come into these uh, type of debates, uh, nobody changes their mind and their opinion is set. And at least, kind of what you described, uh, I don't feel that way whatsoever. I change my mind on a regular basis. I mean, if someone provides some some good evidence or proof or even a credible anecdotal kind of story, that often influences my opinion. So being agnostic, my beliefs and opinions are wavering all over the place yeah, uh, all the time. I, yeah, I think you're like me that there's you have a spectrum of belief or opinion or agreement or whatever you want to call it and like um, I will say that uh, what that uh, I still think that there's a high probability that Rex Heflin photographed something that that was anomalous in Santa Ana and you know the the pictures that look like a straw hat or whatever. Mm-hmm. Those I'm pretty sure he photographed something that's anomalous. I'm open to people 
that say it wasn't. I've looked at the studies. They don't 100% convince me. But then again, you know, the, the, so it's still undecided to me, undecided and unexplained. However, um, what? The uh, when somebody sees something and it looks like it looks like a floating lantern, it's probably a floating lantern. I've been out on what are those called sky watches with people. Mm-hmm. People get very excited when they see lights, and I say that's an airplane, and they get r- upset with me. How do you know? I said because I'm a pilot. There's a red light, a green light, and a white br- blinking white light. That's an airplane, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're all in the right place. The, the green lights on the right side, and the red lights on the left side. Yeah, and people get upset because of that. But you and know, I'm, I'm, I, I assume fairly heavily that that's a normal. That's a normal. Airplane. If something comes flying over, you know, way faster than than a normal uh, than, than uh, any than physically possible, a light comes shooting over and makes weird right angle turns and back and all that. That's not an airplane. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that yet. I'd like to. But the other thing is, if I did see that, what does that prove to me? It proves to me that there's strange things in the sky that we can't identify. It doesn't prove to me there's aliens coming from other planets visiting us in structured ships. It just means something strange we can't explain yet is happening, and we have to look for an explanation. Yep, exactly. I mean, uh, and that's what gets difficult in this field, I think, sometimes. uh, And I get really uncomfortable, even at our own events, because then it becomes kind of almost more like a religious event where if you're not saying you're seeing a ufo it's sacrilegious and it is kind of this group think that almost pressures people who are there into um believing or saying oh yeah that was a ufo yeah well they want to belong to a group every course everybody wants to belong to a group and be accepted i i do too Mm-hmm. I, I like that, but I'm not going to be accepted in a group just be, by putting putting away my critical thinking. In fact, I, in the last few years, I've stopped really caring exactly what people think, mm-hmm. or if I don't agree with them, or if I say something that upsets them. I, I don't really care anymore. But I'm not mean about it. Mm-hmm. I don't tell somebody I'm smarter than them because I think I figured something out, or that you know they're just they're not open-minded enough because they can't consider what I you know I don't care about that stuff. Um, what I care about is um, learning more constantly, and if there's people around that can help me learn more and, and are fairly agnostic and really important, they, they're not emotionally attached to their opinions, that's wonderful. It, it's hard not to be emotionally attached to your opinions, but especially with UFOs, you can't be, or like I said before, you'll get locked into a, a defensive position, and you just get more and more entrenched the more people come up to you and say well how can you believe this and what about this and have you considered this and that if you're emotionally attached to that you're not going to listen anymore you just start filtering out anything that doesn't agree with you and that that's no way to learn anything mm-hmm. now um this old and the reason that i went off on this tangent and the reason we got here which is great because i love this discussion it's i um and I think a lot of the listeners will as well. But the reason I witnessed the direction, because it's interesting that even with the insight that you have, you're still agnostic about Roswell, um, and, which I understand because I, I find it hard not to be myself. Um, but uh, Bill Moore, maybe you can explain in your terms, how did it come to be then that he became this persona non grata and uh, – um, kind of this uh, that and, and disappeared i mean how he reacted to that he didn't disappear right away he just he, nobody was saying anything helpful everybody was mad at him um nobody was joining him to try and help and figure out so he just said finally just said ah, forget it that's a part of my life that's over now 
um, sometime in the early to mid-1990s. Well, I think he completely got off of it in the late 1990s. How would you frame, I guess, uh, in a concisely what happened, like what he did, and then and why people were upset with him? Okay. Yeah, I was going to get to that. Uh, uh-huh. uh, Bill Moore was a UFO researcher. He wrote uh, first. He wrote uh, also with Charles Berlitz the um, uh, Philadelphia Experiment book, and then the Roswell book. Um, he became a fairly important, well-known UFO researcher. He was speaking at conventions all the time. He um, and because of an agreement he made in the late 70s, probably 70, I think 79, yeah, late 1979, um, he was being given supposedly uh, secret documents on UFOs by somebody in the government or a group of people. Um, the thing is, and this is when he was writing the Roswell book, I mean, when the Roswell book was released, he was contacted and said, would you like to help us out? And if you help us out, we will give you some UFO documents that nobody else has seen. He said, all right, you know, who wouldn't take that deal? A lot of UFO people would, would, would jump at it, and of course he did. Um, as it turned out, his part of the deal, though, was that he had to, since there was no Internet at the time um, and no way to really know exactly what people were talking about, he was uh, supposed to provide answers when they were saying, uh, when somebody in the government would say, well, what are people saying about this military base or anything about this? Or did somebody see this light? What's going around in the UFO community? Because it might have been something they were testing and they wanted to know what people had seen because they wanted to guard against, you know, uh, unauthorized people seeing things that they weren't supposed to see or knowing things they weren't supposed to know. So he was there in into the UFO community. And, of course, he couldn't say anything to anybody because then they'd clam up, of course. Which, you know, I would too. Um, so he didn't say anything, and he continued to report on people's activities, what they were doing. He passed messages back and forth between different um, spy agencies. Like he got letters from Russia, and there were basically, I believe there were letters from Russia, but there were re- letters from people that were Russian, that were Americans who were in Russia as spies. But they were sending things to the United States to, you know, to a UFO researcher. Like, you know, I, I'm a U- Russian UFO researcher. Um, would you like to communicate? This is what I know. And there were code embedded in those letters hmm. or postcards. And he'd have to call this this number and just read the letter. Everything in the letter, all the if anything was spelled funny, he'd have to spell it, all the punctuation and everything. Because there was code in those letters telling people what the, the people in Russia were reporting back on. So he basically did spy work in exchange for getting UFO information and documents. And he got lots of them. Um but the, and this is according to Moore. Uh, were you able to verify that that he was telling the truth that this really happened? Uh, the only other person that was going on that this was happening to was his uh, research partner Jamie Chandray, who I did talk to extensively for a long time. He's somebody that nobody ever talked to really. He's never really been interviewed that much, and he dropped out of the field too, uh, right after he was on Coast to Coast. Strangely enough, in 1999. Um, but what I say in defense of Moore, and they say, well, how do you know he's telling the truth? Um, two reasons. One, we're pretty good friends, and he's always been straight with me. And two, everything he's told me has later turned out to be true. Well, everything that I've been able to, you know, um, verify. Later I found out either through other people, through documents, through, through um, things I saw on the Internet, through any various amounts of various types of information that I gathered 
nothing he's told me I've been able to find out was a lie. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and on the top of that, like I said, we've, we've been fairly good friends since 1988 or 87, I think. And, um, I trust him in the unique situation. And I, you know, I, I, <laughs> I can't tell everybody, well, he's my friend, so you should trust him. I'm saying he's my friend, so this is why I trust him. Right. And um, this is, you know, and he's, like I said, he's never steered me wrong. And if he can't tell me something, or if he couldn't, we don't really talk about this stuff anymore, he would say, I can't really talk about it. I may be able to tell you someday, but right now I can't talk about it. And some of the things he told me later and other things he didn't, mm-hmm. which is fine. But he told me as much as he could. And, in fact, he knew that when he told me something, there was a good chance I was going to use the information in some way. So that, and that's part of the reason why he told me. And the other part was, you know, we're just friends and he, you know, he wanted to share things with me. So, yeah, because the hard part is as much as I've tried, uh, you were using terms like they and them. They wanted him to do this or they needed him to do that. I haven't been able to verify there have been a they or them beyond Richard Doty. But um, do you Falcon, the uh, guy that he said was running this whole operation? Well, uh, but Falcon's existence is not confirmed. I mean, the only person that, you know. Uh, the only people that say they've met him or talked to him are Bill Moore and and Richard Doty. That's true. And so and these are at least I feel uh, Bill Moore hasn't always been trustworthy, and certainly Richard Doty has not. Um, I, I will agree with you. Yeah, because you write that you write about that definitely a, yeah, a lot Bill, in your book. So, yeah, Bill wasn't hundred percent happy with Project Beta. Mm-hmm. I had him read the manuscript just, you know, because he said they're, 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 I wanted to make sure I didn't make any mistakes. Yeah. According to him and anybody, you know, I had him read it and then a couple other, I had a couple UFO researcher friends read it too. Um, just to make sure that there wasn't anything wildly wrong with what I'd written. And what Bill said, he got it got finished. I said, what do you think? And he said, I don't agree with everything in there and I'm not totally happy about it, but. I said what I needed to say, and you found out things that I didn't even know, hmm. uh, which not not all of which make me happy. I said, well, he goes, I'm not going to tell you to change anything, but that's how I feel about it. So I say that sometimes to let people know. Like, I didn't write the book at his behest so that he could he could have a story told. Hmm. He was just the source in the book. Um, and like I said, he didn't agree with everything in there, and he wasn't happy about everything in there. Yeah. So, But he didn't have arguments against them. I think he was just uncomfortable about that certain things he said maybe – thought he shouldn't have or revealed things he shouldn't have or other people corroborated things that he didn't know about that made him upset i didn't ask him exactly what he was upset about but um he said it was the you know he was satisfied with the way the book was but <laughs> not totally happy with how it yeah other people it's like well good then i feel like i've done a fair job so you're convinced then that Doty was not working alone though that there was essentially a disinformation project that Doty was kind of point on well the the thing is that kirtland air force base where all this took place is a home to many different projects the air force basically you know it runs everything there because it's an air force base but um there's other groups there doing things the nsa has a presence there the i think the maybe the national reconnaissance office um maybe the cia i'm not exactly sure about all these groups there's many different groups though um working on secret projects and they were you know, just as many uh, back in 1978, 79, 80, you know, sev- the period of the book, which is about 1978 to about 86, 7, something like that. Um, these groups were all there. They all had interest in things that were going on at the base. 
they all had secret projects they had to keep, you know, they had to keep under wraps and make sure that uh, people weren't watching them and, you know, stealing the information and sending it to Russia or China or whatever. And so Dodie was just the one everybody hears about. So they 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 say, well, Dodie's the, the bad guy in this and he did everything. He didn't really. He did a lot of stuff. But, you know, the NSA was there. In fact, they were they were set up apparently across from Paul Benowitz's house and and sending him signals so that he wouldn't take he wouldn't be getting the signals they were sending around working on some coded information. I believe I talked to a guy in the NSA that um, told me about this. So um, you have verified that. So you've talked to an NSA for someone in the NSA. Um, then this would be a third party um, who told you that they were sending Benowitz signals. Uh, uh, he did not tell me that, but he did say that there were there were projects on the base that the NSA was running. That's all he could tell me. Okay. So, uh, but the thing is, I I know that Benowitz got had was receiving signals because other people that I talked to, other UFO researchers, went to his house and saw his setup and talked to him about it and actually saw these strange images on a screen that Benowitz described. Um, Bill Moore told me about it. Um, and the only thing I can think is either one, aliens are sending them these these uh, images, or two, far, far, far more likely, somebody with the wherewithal in 1980 to do this is sending him the images to mess with him. Uh huh. And so, it, just so people know, Benowitz was kind of uh, people who aren't aware. Uh, oh, sorry. No problem. He was the guy that uh, essentially was a target. So um, Doty was having more, uh, you know, give uh, Benowitz material. Uh, one thing as far as I can determine Aquarius uh, document and he actually as, as far as I can tell from talking to more he said that's the only thing I ever gave him and they forced me to give it to him they said give this to Paul because we want him to see it it was something called the, I think called the Aquarius document actually right. mentions MJ12 for the first time ever right um, and, it was and, a complete or mostly fake document Morris said he took him in a in a um, a closet at his work and turned up a radio really loud because he knew people there might be bugs in there and talked in his ear and he said, I was told to give this to you, take it with a grain of salt. And apparently he did because he never mentioned it to anybody um, and he locked it away in a safe. I mean, I'm sure it affected his thinking, but apparently that was the only piece of disinfo that Moore actually passed to Paul Benowitz. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, they were friends. It's just that he couldn't tell him he was working with, you know, with, with with intelligence people to, to, to find out what was going on with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's a very, very complicated story with a lot more players than people think. They only concentrate on the main ones, more, um, more in Doty. Well, um, and well, but there are many others. Yeah, well, let's do it. We'll do a show where we talk more about this because uh, I haven't found evidence that there are others except for uh, because everything we know comes from Doty and more. But I'd like your perspective. But let's move ahead um, yeah. so we can get into other topics. And so uh, just kind of to talk about Morris downfall. So he finally comes clean. And uh, maybe you could verify whether you believe this to be true or not. Also, just because Hastings kind of uh, Robert Hastings, another researcher who we had on fairly recently, um, yeah. kind of caught wind of all of this and was trying to expose Bill Moore, and so Bill Moore kind of uh, fell on his sword and went out and told everybody about it at a MUFON uh, symposium. Um, I don't think it was only Hastings, but I might, might be wrong. Uh-huh. I respect Hastings and his work with the UFOs and nukes thing, but I had an online argument with him once, and he said, 
I know that Falcon, who we talked about earlier, was Richard Doty. And I said, how do you know that? He said, because he told uh, Linda, Linda Howe. I said, you mean you don't believe anything he says until he tells Linda Howe something? That makes no sense whatsoever. Well, and uh, an argument against that, too, is that he doesn't necessarily feel that Linda Howe, I know, is a credible resource. So um, he's citing... Well, apparently he thinks Linda Howe and Richard Doty are credible resources when it agrees with his idea that um, about Doty being what they called Falcon. All these different names were made, were made up by Morin and Chandray to refer to these people in the government that they were dealing with. And um, Falcon was the guy that was the head of all of it and was telling all the different agencies what to do. They were trying to trap Russian spies. That's basically what this, the Benowitz thing and this whole episode was a tiny, tiny little part of a huge operation. Um, when UFO people look at it, they think it's just something to drive UFO uh, people crazy, make them look <laughs> bad and all that. had nothing to do with that whatsoever. It just had to do with national security. Um, and the, the way it turned out for uh, Benowitz was unfortunate because he was unstable to begin with, and all this stuff just made him more unstable, and he ended up in a mental institution for a few months. Mm -hmm. um, his family put him there, and it's unfortunate and horrible and, and uh uh, but the thing is that at the time they didn't care what was happening to him as long as the secrets were kept and they kept a lid on on uh, all the uh, black projects that were going on around Kirtland at the time. And and it kind of seems like if if this is all the way it went and this is true, then uh, you know, given the the story you've given uh, just now, uh, Bill Moore then goes to this symposium. He talks oh, about right. what he did. People get pissed. Uh, they don't want to work with him anymore. There's people yelling and screaming, I guess, and leaving. Uh, and in the end, he didn't even, it doesn't seem uh, that he got anything of substance at all. He never really got any secrets. Not really. I think he got a few. Well, I, you know what? I will say in Hastings' defense, I, I think he was um, – bothering more and just basically was another one an, another needle in his side just saying you know you better do something because all the what Moore told me I believe was the rumors are going crazy it was getting worse and worse and I needed to say something so I decided to tell them everything that I could at the time mm -hmm. and I said um, what well, would you do it the same way again he goes I wouldn't be so arrogant that's the only thing he said uh -huh. <laughs> but yeah everybody um, I was at that MUFON convention in 1980 wow. in Las Vegas. I was standing in the room when it happened, and the, it was the best speech I ever saw anywhere on anything hmm. because of the reaction. Mm -hmm. You know, I've never seen people react like that to anything, not a political speech, nothing. So it was a very highly charged atmosphere. They, I mean, the, you can see, I don't know if it's online because I think MUFON owns it, but I actually, somebody sent me a videotape, a copy of the video of his speech. Wow. You can hear all the yelling sort of in the background, and the state section director has to stop the had to stop it about three or four times to tell everybody to calm down. Mm -hmm. And then after it was over, Moore wrote a whole bunch. Uh, he wrote a whole bunch of questions and answered them because he didn't want to take questions from the audience. Yeah. Because it turned into more pandemonium, and he knew that. Um, but yeah, after after that, he he said, "Anybody that still wants to help me, please contact me." And all people did was get really mad at him. Uh, <laughs> yeah. With some justification, right? Uh, but the thing is that uh, I think that in a lot of, in, in, especially in a weird field like ufology, if you let the emotion, your emotions get the better of you, you're missing a whole lot of stuff. 
Right. Uh, you could oh, still add more and still talk to him, mm-hmm. and, but people would not. Instead of instead of talking to him, they would just write him or calling up with a- accusations instead of, why did you do this? Can you explain to me? He said all he got was people yelling at him incoherently, so he said, okay, forget it. Yeah. I don't think I, I wouldn't have gotten that as a, upset. Well, I never get that upset. But, I mean, I, <laughs> with him even, I would have just been like uh, – I would have thought it was interesting and fun because it's something to write about and, and interview people about. But um, I also would have felt like, uh, well, it, it, his credibility with me would be damaged. But um, uh, at the same time, and the reason that uh, – just because you, what you just mentioned, if people get too emotional about stuff and they miss it – a lot of people just wanted to then just forget the whole episode, and the reason it's important not to forget that episode is what you mentioned earlier, is that MJ-12 was mentioned for the first time in that Project Aquarius document that uh, Doty gave more, and this whole legend that even Stanton Friedman and, and many others subscribe to, maybe you do, I don't know, but this whole idea of MJ-12 stems from this incident. Yeah, I think so. It, it was a, I asked uh, Bill about this many years later, but recently, actually, in the last couple of years, I said, what do you think MJ-12 was? And he said, I don't think it has anything to do with UFOs whatsoever at all. Mm-hmm. I just think it was a convenient thing that was extremely secret that it was easy to hang a whole bunch of stuff on because it was a defense it was a defense uh, uh, connected group it was a small group and it was a group that wasn't too much on the record so it was really hard to trace exactly what it was so they could hang all kinds of uh, identities on it and that's what they did with the with the uh, with what's with the Eisenhower briefing document with the um, What's the McCutler Twining memo? All these things that sort of point vaguely to something that nobody can get too much information on. So they were able to hang a whole bunch of disinformation on this little piece of information that's uh, that's obscure. And this, like I said, I don't, I have, you know, the greatest uh, confidence that this was none of it was done to mess with UFO investigators and make them look bad. Mm-hmm. And it, all it was was let's cover up as much as possible, um, all the things that we don't want foreign governments to see and that we don't want UFO investigators to inadvertently start handing to people when they just think it's UFO information. That, that, that's what yeah. they're trying to control. Not, not, you know, you know, a lot of uh, UFO researchers think that the government's really interested in them because of, of, of the UFO secret. They're not. You know what? I think they're just as confused about UFOs as um, as uh, probably more than than UFO researchers. And yeah. they, you know, in fact, they probably look to them for some answers, like what the hell is going on here? But if it starts running into national security, they get very concerned and start steering people away from it. Or conversely, um, another thing you do with uh, this kind of information is see who's interested in it and check up on their background. You you, you know, it basically it's flypaper for spies. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, and like you said earlier, I mean, for instance, when when Benowitz uh, uh, was receiving signals, he he lived right across the street from the base, and uh, he had a, a lab right by the base. And when he was receiving signals, um, if he thought they were alien, which he did, um, he might have inadvertently shared that information when it was stuff that the base was working on that they didn't want Russians or others to find out. Exactly. Um, I mean, that's what they were worried about. And right. he, was try- he was starting to try and decode it, which really worried them. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm not exactly sure what the coded transmissions were. I guess they were some way to, um, you know, I think it had to do with microbursts where you, like, send a whole bunch of information very quickly um, in a very short amount of time that just sounds like gibberish until you have the right equipment to sort of slow it down and decrypt it. And Benowitz was fiz- figuring that out, and they were like, geez, we've poured millions of dollars into this, and this guy's figuring it out. So let's find out how he's figuring it out and who he's talking to and um, see if we can prevent this in the future by, by kind of keeping an eye on him. So, um, that, you know, his problem was he was just too curious. And his second problem, which was bigger, was that he drew very outlandish conclusions from little bits of data that, that didn't mean what he thought it, it did. Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunate. I mean, nothing past it. He was brilliant, brilliant electronics uh, uh, engineer, but uh, combined with his belief that there was um, aliens around and they, that, that apparently they were invading the the world or at least the United States, that 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 um, it kind of uh, it, it set the stage for him to eventually just have a breakdown. Mm-hmm. And then, in defense of the people who believe that this was UFO related. Uh, and doubt your your how you try to explain it was more to do with the Russians and, and other things. Um, Doty goes on uh, past this even to recent years to talk about these wild UFO and alien claims that he he has, which are absolutely ridiculous. Um, what uh, Serpo? Well, including Serpo. Yeah. Uh, and so explain what Serpo is. Uh, this happened in the, ooh, 19, no, the early 2000s, something like that, or mid, I can't even remember what year it was. Yeah, not oh, that was long ago. 2007, 8, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a rumor that there was a, um, an exchange program between some alien civilization and the United States government, and they sent some astronauts to their planet, and some of the aliens came here, and then after a while, the aliens went back, and some of the astronauts came back. Some of them died, and a couple of them stayed, or whatever. That was the story. Absolutely zero way to verify that whatsoever. But that was it was making this stories were making the rounds basically on this guy named Victor Martinez's um, uh, email list. I was on the list. Um, Me too. I was, yeah, I was kind of going, what the hell's going on here? Um, and then uh, after it got to a fever pitch, a few of the uh, players and interested people went on coast to coast with Nori and talked about it. And one of them was Richard Doty. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, my God. I mean, and him and a couple other people were people that were around and doing these sort of things when Benowitz was being messed with. I said, how can you in your right mind think that this has anything to do with any kind of actual reality when these one the same people are involved two it's completely outlandish and three it has it has uh, no way to be verified um i i think it was being done to pass messages again uh somehow uh because martinez when he was getting these emails whoever was giving them to him i guess the guy's name they used request anonymous was the person's the source's name. He started changing some of the language because he's an English teacher, and he said, "Oh well, you know, this is written wrong. Let me correct the sentence structure, and this is spelled wrong." They wrote to him and said, "Do not change any of this stuff because if you do, we're going to stop sending it to you." Hmm. Why should they care? Um, I think the reason was because there was something encoded in all those punctuation, grammar, spelling, and whatever errors that needed to be seen by somebody. And one, a message might be passed, and two, whoever can figure out the message starts talking about it, and they can watch their email and their phone calls and everything. It's like, guess what just came out of so-and-so? It said this. 
you know, how did you figure that out? Well, well, and then there was a... They know something they're not supposed to. So I think it was they were out there trying to, like, like I said, a, a spy flypaper again. Mm-hmm. And then there were some IT guys that looked into it as well, and they felt they were able to prove that um, the emails were coming from the same IP address as Richard Doty's. Yes. Yes, I heard about this. And then and the, uh, Doty stopped talking to me because of that, because of Serpo, because I implicated him in, in on UFO Mystic. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, there's a there, some of this is in the uh, it defies language. There's, right. there's a couple entries on that. Yeah, yeah. That's and, one reason I wanted to bring it up. Yeah, Dodie stopped talking to me at that point. As soon as he saw my post, he said, "I was offended by your post. I don't want to uh, take me off any list you're on, and I don't want to hear from you ever again." And he hasn't talked to me since then. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't friends with him or anything, but you know, I was. I, it was as a cordial enough relationship to be able to talk to him. Um, ask him questions, and get him on Coast to Coast when I was on for Project Beta. He, he actually came on and talked more than I did, which is good. I, I, it was a great show because of that. Yeah, what, in fact, that show. Uh-huh. What's <laughs> whether, that? You believe him, whether you believe him or not, or whatever the stories or whatever you want, that was historic. It was the first time he was on any media talking about right. anything to do with any of this, and it was, uh, it, was, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, in fact, I used that show as my one source uh from Doty because it's the only place where it's coming straight from his mouth because every time uh, someone interviews him in print, which of course was the medium before when all this was happening, um, he easily and, and does deny, oh, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. And he does this all the time and he'll change his story back and forth. And I feel a lot of these print sources are credible sources such as um, the uh, – um, Saucer Smear, which he wrote in a lot, uh, where he contradicts himself left and right, um, which you found as well. Um, so that's why I use that interview as the one source uh, because – and I always give the caveat that I don't trust what comes from this guy's mouth at all. It changes constantly. So just to reference what his story is, here's the one time he's on the record and you can go listen to him for yourself. Yeah, well, people have problems with Doty as well, or anybody, any spy-type person, intelligence-connected person, because it's like, well, how can you trust what they say? Well, you can't. But if you don't listen, you get nothing. Yeah. And if you listen, occasionally there's things you can check up on. This is what I re- – I interviewed him for about, I don't know, like three hours, a big three-hour interview. We just sat at a Denny's in New Mexico at this uh, at a table and interviewed him for three hours without a recorder, which was unfortunate because he wouldn't let me. But the thing is, I wanted to talk to him because he was an important part of the story. And, you know, a lot of people like, why do you even talk to him? He's a big liar. It's like liars aren't, you know, he doesn't lie all the time. And if he isn't, I can check on the stuff that, that corroborates. Yeah. You know, did did Doty say something? OK, so did Bill Moore say something? I trust Bill. And then he, on top of that, what if I talk to what? Gabe Valdez or I talk to um, uh, Gary Massey, who was another person that knew Benowitz. What if I talk to these people and they tell me the same thing? Well, then probably Doty is telling me something that actually happened from his point of view, and I, I have to uh, consider that as possibly an important part of the story. Then if he tells me something that has nothing to do with what we're talking about that seems highly implausible and whatever, and there's no way for me to check on it, I don't, there were many things he told me I didn't even mention in the book because they're either irrelevant or I was pretty sure they were false. Mm-hmm. Um, and if he did tell me something that I that – I, that only came from him. I I made certain to say that this this you know this is the Doty said this, not somebody else. 
And if I just say this happened, that means two or three or more people told me basically the same story. Mm-hmm. Well, I, mean, I tried to do it that way. I mean, I, I didn't believe everything anybody told me. Yeah. Well, let's let's get on other topics because I didn't want to use the whole show talking about that. Oh, wait a second. We did just use the whole show talking about that. No, I'm yeah, just pretty much. I'm just kidding. It's it's terribly interested. Obviously, I'm so interested in it, and I think you know because so much of the mythology uh, that people believe in, like you know, I talked with a religious fervor, where it's sacrilege to doubt some of these things, like MJ12, um, all stem uh, from this episode. It's sacrilege not to doubt everything. I I agree, brother. <laughs> I agree. But uh, that's okay. I want to bring you on and talk more about all of this, actually. So we'll talk some more about all of this. But um, I guess before we leave, a couple of things I wanted to note about the book. So it's really cool that uh, Red Pill Junkie, um, you know, he's a guy online that uh, – uh, that's his Twitter handle. And yeah. uh, he's always in there kind of posting stuff, talking and asking questions. He's got a great sense of humor. And I didn't even know till the conference when you guys were there, and it was wonderful that you brought him so I could meet him, uh, that people thought I was Red Pill Drunkie. <laughs> That's hilarious. But, yeah, uh, we got that picture of both of you together, so we know that you yeah. at least were both in the same place at the same time in the same picture, so... You know, either that or there's more red pill junkies around. You're both red pill junkie. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, kind of like anonymous or something. There's. Well, he came because you know the reason a lot of people came and I I, I made the special trip is because Jacques Vallée was there and he never makes public appearances anymore and yeah. somehow you got him to appear there which is wonderful and he was gracious to everybody. I was mm-hmm. flabbergasted how friendly and and accessible he was. But yeah, that, that's part of the reason that um, red pill came also because. Um, I'd never met him before. We've been talking online for like two years, so he he made the effort to come up and um, we we you know we shared we shared the hotel room and the and a, a car and all that stuff, so that it would be a little less expensive. But mm-hmm. yeah, and he did. A, this is the first book uh, project he's worked on, and I I hope he gets more work out of it because his, his illustrations and the cover and everything are are just beautiful. It looks like a 1950s uh, uh, science fiction movie uh, poster. Which is perfect. Do you, do you do you recognize what that thing is standing in the light in the on the underneath the UFO? Yeah, that's um, I can't remember the name of the case, but yeah, that early uh, very popular case. Uh, those guys in back east somewhere, wasn't it? Or Pascagoula. Yeah, Pascagoula. Yeah, that's so. my favorite. My favorite alien is the Pascagoula alien because it looks like it. It sort of looks like a kachina. <laughs> yeah, well, it's so weird. In the early, uh, you know, creatures, things were people were seeing, and in the seventies, when lots of humanoids were seen, they were so varied in the descriptions. Yeah. They were odd and weird. And the best cases uh, really have really odd descriptions of, of what has been seen. Yeah, it's it's. I think that's highly significant. That especially nineteen seventies and before, the things that people saw were were very different. Everybody had a different, you know. There were so many different humanoid types that people reported. Um, kind of makes kind of makes you a little uh, uh, questioning about Roswell too. It's like, wow, that kind of conforms to what everybody thinks it is now. Yeah. Nineteen seventy-eight, you know, start maybe well in the sixties, sort of. Uh, Betty Betty and Barney Hill sort of conformed to that, not really, but then definitely after Bud Hopkins and and. Uh, 
Whitley Strieber's books, especially the cover of Communion, mm-hmm. that's what everybody thought an alien looked like. So a lot of the sightings narrowed down to that. And I think it's because the people had a template to put on their, their, their experience, their subconscious or whatever's going on, just said, okay, that's what the thing looks like. So that's, you know, these cases, 1970 and before, 1980 and before, I guess, 1970s was a very strange decade for humanoid cases. Yeah. Just, just ask Albert Rosales or look at his site. Oh, but, right, uh, right. And, uh, of course, that's when uh, the, the, the main case happened um, and, uh, and Travis Walton. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I felt that was a major reveal in your book, that Red Pill Junkie is actually Miguel Romero. Yeah. So, so yeah, and you're right. His illustrations are really cool. They're awesome. He did a great job in this. Yeah, yeah. And I guess lastly, um, just to end on uh, for the the <laughs> all of the people who, you know, there's, there's some people, a lot of my – uh, listeners like the the critical thinking and, and the reviewing of all of the uh, and the, the kind of skeptical review of of stuff. But um, what are just for to, to, something for people to chew on and to look up? What do you feel are some of the m- most credible cases? Maybe even if you have one that people aren't general generally aware of. Huh. If there are any, <laughs> I would. S- you know what I would say? Anything before I – mean, uh, for abduction cases, anything you can find before 1980 <laughs> uh-huh. because the, things became codified then. For you know, right. uh, you know, classic cases, I, like I said, I like that Heflin case. I, the Pascagoula case is wonderful mm-hmm. apart from the fact that the, there was more than one type of alien, but that was the main one was that Kachina-looking thing um, because because of the secret recording that was made of the, of the two yeah. main witnesses when the police weren't there and they didn't think they were being recorded. Yeah, yeah. So people they didn't say, "What are we going to say next?" They're both just sitting there, going, "What the hell happened? What are we going to do? What you know? How are you know? How are we get? How's this going to affect our lives?" I'm totally freaked out. You know, all this stuff when yeah. when nobody was listening. So something definitely strange happened to those two guys. I don't know exactly what it was or what I would have seen if I was standing there, but to me, that's you know, very strong indication that the something very strange happened to a, a couple of guys that had no uh, motivation whatsoever to lie about it. The weird thing is that. Um, um, Charles Hickson, the, one of the witnesses in the case, had two more sightings after that, mm-hmm. and he wrote about them in, in, in uh, uh, I think it's called UFO Contact at Pascagoula or something like that, a book that came out in the late seventies, and he describes seeing seeing a um, another craft in the in the in the woods in in the in the south in, in Mississippi where he lived, and his family saw it too, so there's other people that saw it, so you know what what, what do you make of that? So something very strange was going on with uh, Charles Hickson and, and, and Calvin Parker, but I think that's a well-documented uh, minute and well uh, a, a case that to me is kind of a, a landmark. Um, uh, if you want to if you want to start with a landmark case, just really get it. If you find a copy of that uh, Charles Hickson book, I think it was uh, he was he had a co-writer. I think uh, Menendez or Melendez was the name of the co-writer. Anyway, if you can find that book, it's a fascinating book. All right. My last question, uh, because, yeah, that's great. That's perfect. Pascagoula, which now people know what's on the cover here, where that creature comes from. But the last question about the book, then, it defies language. What does that mean to you? What was uh, when you came up with that title? Um, Did you hear me talk about this before? Because I love this question. (laughs) No, I haven't. I was working on putting all these uh, essays together. 
um, writing some new ones, finding stuff that nobody had ever read before, um, you know, uh, rare stuff that I, I that just sat on my computer for years. I'm getting all this stuff together, and, and, and Red Pill's working with me, and he says, I need a title so I can start designing this cover. And this is October of last year. I said, okay, I'll come up with a title. November, December, January, I still don't have a title. I can't think of one. I was like, what the hell am I going to call this? So I took the introduction to the book that I'd already written and put it in an online cut-up generator, which is basically it takes all the words you have and jumbles them completely randomly. All the same words, you know, like, you know, 1,500 words. You get 1,500 words back in this cut-up generator, and it just jumbles them into gibberish completely randomly. Um, I took that, and I started reading through the gibberish, and any time a phrase came to my head, I would write it down. <laughs> and that was one of the phrases that came out. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, because because about four or five different phrases came out, and I put them in. I think one of them was um, um, extraordinary claims. And I thought, oh, now that sounds like a total skeptical book. I don't, you know, the the uh, the skeptic, you know, the fundamental. That's a good one, though. Yeah, fundamentalist skeptical movement has, has co-opted that phrase and turned it into something that scares people. Don't yeah. like. Um, I settled. And on it's it, a little I, too cliche. It's a little more cliche. Yeah. I settled on It Defies Language two reasons. One, it's hilarious. It's a book called It Defies Language. <laughs> yeah, that is great. And two, I think that the terms we use to describe what we see or what UFOs are mm. are limiting us mm. because language limits your thought. It only lets you think about certain things that you can describe in language. So I'm, what I'm saying is a lot of the, you know, a lot of the um, UFO, any paranormal stuff, is limited by the language, and the language determines how we think about it. And there's got to be a way to get around that. I'm not not exactly sure what it is. It might, it might lie in the realm of you know creative thinking or art. I'm not sure. I've got I've got an essay on there called um, UFOs as a Cosmic Art Project, um, and then I've got a part two basically. That sounds I, Jungian. Yes, I I. I um, in the talk I'm working on, I'm trying to bring in more things like archetypes and Jung and uh, 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 mythology. My wife is working on a doctorate in that right now. Wow, so cool. So I actually have a lot, of, a lot of conversations with her about it, and it's relevant to what I'm trying to figure out right now because I think a lot of the thing, what's most important with the, with the UFO question to me is what causes UFO sightings? What do people see when they have an unexplained sighting of something? What is it that they're looking at? I don't know what that is, but I think it has a lot to do with who we are, how we think about things, what our language is like, all that. And it comes through all those filters before we decide that I've seen a flying saucer with aliens on it or whatever we decide. So that, that to me is fascinating, and that to me is a very important question. What do people see? Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to go back to a basic question like that. What do people see? How do they see it? And is there any way to get past Get out of our own way, if, if you know what I'm saying here. Mm-hmm. Well, perfect. And where are you going to do this talk? I've already done one very embryonic version of it. And the uh, next, as far as I know, the next version is going to be at uh, IUFOC next year. That's right. So, <laughs> yeah, we're announcing it again. At the first, that uh, we I've done this actually with, I think, the last guest. And... Uh, you know, we haven't officially announced anybody yet, but I've been announcing a, a person a show. Not intentionally. It's just working out that way. So we had Paul Stonehill was our guest last week, and he uh-huh. will be uh, speaking at the conference. Uh, he's also got a new book out. And yes, you, for uh, – and this isn't your first time. It's your first time with us, but 
you've spoke at the UFO Congress uh, a few other times, haven't you? Two or three times. The last time probably was almost 10 years ago. Yeah. Because I started saying things that made people mad, and I didn't come out with a lot of books. But I think, um, one, I released this book, and two, I think people are starting to, especially in the last year or so, which is wonderful, are starting to become more open-minded about um, uh, going back to basics and starting to look at things rather than in a nuts and bolts and how can we measure it and all that thing, going, going back to what I just said. What do we see? How do we see it? And um, how does that uh, uh, reflect on how we think about it? Um, you know what? You can't you can't make a UFO come up on on demand. It just it just doesn't work. So you got to think of different ways to study them. Yeah, and on the far end, the fringe end, I think they're rethinking things too. Because on the fringe, a lot of those people out there who are the ones that they follow, you know, almost like the UFO prophets. <laughs> they've made all these promises about what's going to come to fruition, and none of those things have happened. And so I think they're kind of relooking at everything themselves as well. So, uh, which isn't a bad thing at all. We all, I think, need to kind of uh, constantly be challenging ourselves and our own beliefs. Yeah, trust no one except for your um, ability to, you know, to uh, discern what's what's more. Uh, credible and believable or not I think that's only the, the only person you should trust is yourself um, trusting it putting your total trust in anybody else's I think is a always a huge mistake amen to that brother <laughs> <laughs> well it was awesome having you on this was a great uh, talk and we'll definitely talk again I'm sure before the conference uh, I would yeah. like to at least but uh, very very excited would. to have you speaking at the conference as well and I highly highly recommend the book um, and where can people where's the best place for people to go get the book well for me the best place is go to lulu.com because I get the I get this biggest chunk from it good then that's but where we'll you, send people yeah um, I can send you those links but it's also I, I actually formatted it for Kindle myself the Kindle version actually is about half the price and there's about 70 more pages of material and color, color illustrations and pictures and things like that in it I, I, and links and things like that, things that you can do in a Kindle that you can't do in a print book. So, yeah, either go to Amazon. You can buy it there, buy a Kindle, um, or uh, uh, the best for me is Lulu. Se okay. Secondarily, the best for me is actually Kindle um, if, if people want to do it that way. But, cool, yeah, Lulu and Kindle. Yeah. All right, thanks so much for being on. All right, thanks so much for having me, Alejandro, and I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much to Greg Bishop for being on the show. I mean, I, I hope you all really enjoyed that. I certainly did. In fact, this might have been one of my favorite shows in a long time, although I have a lot of fun, as you can tell, with most of the shows. So this was really, really fascinating. I apologize if we got too much into the details. I just feel that this is a situation where we have on the record an Air Force official while he was in the Air Force talking about UFOs and and giving information to people in the public, information that he um, at the time purported was real UFO documents and now admittedly says they were not. So he is an, essentially admitting to being involved with fraudulent activity while he was in the Air Force. Um, I think the Air Force needs to um, 
respond to this. And that's why at openminds.tv, I do have an open letter to the Air Force where I outline all of the evidence. And of course, uh, citing uh, Greg Bishop's Project Beta, but also Greg Bishop's appearance on Coast to Coast with Richard Doty, where Richard Doty admits to all of this. Uh, You can hear him firsthand. Uh, So I just think that this case is really important for those reasons. You will not find this elsewhere. So if the Air Force had any involvement, and essentially you can see the information I have when I made requests to the Air Force say, we're essentially saying, no, we didn't. However, the documents they showed me uh, demonstrated that Richard Doty was involved with um, uh, false information being or, or given to somebody, including two senators. Um, so you can hear this in my um, report there, or and you can see it in the report. So the Air Force absolutely needs to make an official comment as to whether or not um, Richard Doty was um, under orders to uh, do this this. BS that he was doing out there and their only response to this whole thing has been to write bogus on one of the MJ-12 documents. Okay, sure, that document's bogus, but why is it that your employee, um, your, you know, is the one who uh, was involved with at first dispensing this information. I mean, that was that's the big question they have yet to answer. So hopefully we can get these sort of answers because it's important and we need to know if Greg Bishop is in fact correct, you know, that, you know, all of this mythology that has been built in the UFO community that, that people um, cling to uh, was all part of a disinformation uh, project by the U.S. Air Force in order to cover up projects so the Russians wouldn't find that out. Is that the case? And, you know, some people get afraid and I think upset because then they think that that kind of um, poo-poos the entire idea of UFOs. But no, I don't, not at all. We still have Blue Book. Um, we still have Roswell. We still have Rendlesham. We still have a lot of great cases and situations um, that are credible. But uh, it's important for, understa- for us to understand what is and is not credible so we can make sure that we're not follow- chasing our tails or, you know, going on these wild goose chases. Because certainly some people have built their careers around this mo- mythology that came out during the Doty years. So other than that, Greg Bishop, I mean, what a great guy. What a great researcher. Um, I very much implore everyone to check out his podcast, Radio Mysterio, and then also check out his book, um, which as he, he talked about, you can find on Amazon or Scribe or get the Kindle version. So Thank you very much to Greg Bishop. Uh, a couple notes. I noted this earlier, but uh, and I want to repeat this not just because I'm speaking at these venues, but because, you know, 
Uh, I'm very grateful to these guys to allow me to share my information and to share what Open Minds does with their audiences. So I want to make sure and do what I can to help them get audiences. Um, but I want to thank the Roswell Daily Record. Again, I'll be there this weekend. You can go just Google the Roswell Daily Record and you'll see the Roswell Incident, which is information about their event that is going on this weekend in honor of the anniversary of the Roswell Incident. And, um, you know, I'll be speaking there. You'll also be able to go across uh, down the street and to the UFO Museum and see people like um, Don Schmidt and Travis Walton and Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin and Yvonne Smith and a number of other people. I'm forgetting many people, but uh, they've got a lot of great speakers there, too. So it's just a lot of fun. And, and I love um, seeing everybody there. Um, and of course, it's always fun to hang out with my good buddy Lee Spiegel. Ben Hans is going to be out there doing a Skywatch like he does for the UFO Congress as well. Um, and then I also want to thank uh, MUFON because they're going to be having me speak. And be sure to uh, schedule your travel and get out there if you can, the MUFON Symposium. I'll be speaking about official government UFO agencies because, as you know, we, I've interviewed a lot of the officials that work for these agencies. And uh, not everybody knows uh, the details about which ones exist currently and why they exist because that's where the interesting story is many of these agencies uh exist today because of incredible ufo incidents that happened in their countries that caught the eye of the public and or their government officials um in the case of france the president was very uh interested in one case and that's kind of what uh encouraged them to get into ufo research so uh, I'm really excited to share this information at the MUFON Symposium. Thank you guys for having me there. You could just look up MUFON Symposium and find more information about that. Plus, I talked about Richard Hoffman earlier. He's going to be there. Oh, they just announced, too, um, Robert Hastings, who I had on the show recently, who does the investigation or the work on UFO nukes. That's going to be their keynote speaker, so that's an exciting one. Otherwise, they have a whole list of exciting speakers. and uh, So you could go to MUFON.com or just uh, Google MUFON Symposium and find out more about that. Or for all of these, you can go to the event page at OpenMinds.tv and uh, be able to get links and information there as well so it's going to be a fun and interesting summer and then of course we are taking registrations for the ufo congress right now and let me give you another name um of a speaker uh let's see who have i got confirmed I, i've already told you guys we're going to have ryan sprague um we're going to have paul stonehill we're also going to have well we're going to have kathleen martin and Yvonne Smith. So Yvonne Smith is every, there every year uh, to talk about, um, well, to, she always um, does the, uh, the panel. She helps us guide the panel for abductions uh, at the conference. And she does the um, experiencer sessions during the day and night where people can come and share their experiences. Uh, she will also have her own talk now. I'm not sure what even the topic's going to be, but I'm excited about that. And Kathleen Martin is going to be speaking about something she usually doesn't. She's MUFON's abduction expert, um, and of course she's the niece of Betty Hill. However, she's going to be talking about weirdness that goes on with different UFO cases. So this is a talk I don't know that she's ever done before, and it's going to be something 
completely different. So that'll be a lot of fun. So there's a couple other names. We'll have more names up for you probably next week. So uh, we're really looking forward to the UFO Congress this year. I think it's going to be a great lineup. I'm so excited by the people we've got confirmations from so far. And we'll be letting you know more about that. But right now you can get the Super Early Bird Special. And... Like I said, on July 2nd, watch our social media. We'll send out information on how you can get an even bigger discount. So essentially, the cheapest prices are on July 2nd. I will be out of town, so I'm going to be hard to reach. So you're going to have to watch our social media. uh, And uh, so I'll get you more information about that. So exciting stuff. Oh, my gosh. And it's a long weekend. How cool is that? I hope you all have a wonderful July 4th. I want to thank Caleb Hanks for the opening and close music. I want to thank the Dark Matters uh, Network for playing or replaying our show. Um, also, the PSN Network that replays our show. And I want to thank you um, the most, the listeners, for being there to listen every week. It's so fun to be able to share this information uh, with you and it, it just means a lot that there's so many of you out there that enjoy hearing it so we'll talk to you again in a couple weeks have a great july 4th weekend adios muchachos <laughs>